morning, everybody. My name is Joe, and I'll be reading the text for today. You can follow along in your Bibles or your Bible journals or the Bible app, or the words will be displayed on the screens in front. Okay, Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also, Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as he says also in another place, You are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications, with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Thanks, Joe. Morning, everyone. Uh, We're continuing in the series, Rest Assured, and uh, this morning my message is entitled Contentment, so Rest Assured, Contentment, and uh, I was thinking a lot about different moments in my life where I was trying to consider uh, what needed to be done, how it needed to be done, and I'm told that they don't have this class in school anymore, or at least not called this anymore, but I had a class called Home Economics, or Home Ec. And uh, if, if you're uh, my age, you know, 20 or something or older, uh, <laughs> you'll know what I'm talking about. But, you know, for those that are older in the audience, uh, um, uh, this idea of home economics, home ec, and uh, one of the things we had to do beyond, like, it was like sewing and cooking and all of those types of things. And uh, there was, for some reason, there, there was a, uh, this idea that the teacher had that if you could finish whatever um, needed to be done, you could use the rest of the class as a study hall, essentially. And so it was a way of baiting people, I think, to remain engaged. And it had a little bit of a backfire type uh, impact in the sense that uh, as a result, there were certain groups of people that would just do things so quick that it was just devastating. Like, that, you know, you're, we're going to sew a bag, and you'd get this bag, and it was just, you know, you can't even open it. There's no opening because everybody's just like, boom, just running it through the thing. They're like, hey, yeah, now we're going to just hang out. And uh, so you'd have these things that were completely useless, and things were just made so quickly uh, because they just wanted to get it done. And so they would break us up into groups, and we would have to do things as a group, mostly just to infuriate the people that wanted to follow the instructions or do anything right. And isn't it interesting that, that you always get paired up with somebody the exact opposite? It seems that way. You know, it's never like two like high-performing, rule-following people that get paired up together and do something amazing. It's always like one person that does all the work and the other person's just like messing everything up. And you're like, why are we together? And they're like, because nothing's fair in the universe. That's why. And uh, so I had one of those types of moments. We had to, we had to make a pie, uh, not a pie, a cake. <laughs> we had to make a cake. Um, and so 
there's instructions. And it was super simple. Like you have to, to mix the dry ingredients and mix the wet ingredients. And then at a certain point, you put the two together. And if you've ever baked anything or made anything, you know what I'm talking about. It's not rocket science. And so you just follow the instructions. And I was paired up with two people that did not want to follow the instructions at all. They just wanted to be done as quickly as possible so that they could spend the rest of the class as a study hall. And uh, I was just annoyed because I just wanted to do it right. I, I don't even want to bake. I don't even care about it. I just wanted to do it right. And so I was like, well, look, we have to sift the flour. We had those big sifters. You're like, you know, it seemed fun to me. And so anyway, I was like, we're gonna, we have to sift the flour first. They're like, flour's flour. It doesn't matter. It doesn't need to be sifted. It's ridiculous. I don't even own one of those. I was like, I don't own one either, but it says to sift it. They're like, look, how many cups of flour? They just put it in there. I'm like, well, but we should sift it. It's what the instructions say. They're like, just relax. All the stuff is going to go in there. As long as we get the right stuff in there, it'll be fine. And so they didn't mix the dry ingredients and the wet ingredients. They just put everything in a bowl, every single thing at the same time. The people that are laughing have baked things. Everybody else is like, I don't understand the problem here. Um, so what happened was it was disgusting. It was inedible, and the cake was like about an inch high. It was like a little block that came out. And they're like, I don't know what we did wrong. We had all the ingredients right. And the teacher's like, well, did you follow the instructions? They're like, all the ingredients are right. She's like, that's not what I asked. Did you follow the instructions? I'm like, I have an answer there. No, we did not follow the instructions. And she's like, well, the instructions are there for a reason. You have to do things in a specific order. And they're like, we got it done. We got it done. And so... The reason why I kind of share that story is because it's kind of a, a snapshot of something that I want us to consider as we go through this morning's message. In what ways have we avoided suffering is the question I want you to consider. In what ways have we avoided suffering? And the reason why that question kind of makes sense in the, in the light of that story, and the story will make more sense as we move throughout the message, is to the people involved in the process, the idea of following the instructions was like this burdensome form of suffrage. Like, why do we have to read everything? As long as we have the ingredients right and we do it our way as quickly as possible, everyone's happy. We'll just do it our way and be done. There's no reason to suffer through the process. So in what ways have we avoided suffering? I think the answer is, is kind of easy. It's in any way possible. Like, we avoid suffering in any way possible. As I've mentioned before, I think we're willing to suffer for things that matter most to us. But in the end, if we can avoid suffering, we will. Like, who wants to endure suffering? It's not rocket science, really. In fact, it's human nature to avoid pain if we can. And we want easy whenever possible. If it's easy, do it the easy way. When given the opportunity, we choose the path of least resistance. And when not given the opportunity, we attempt to justify the shortcut that we took, right? You've heard the saying, work smarter, not harder. Work smarter, not harder. And that simply means this. Whenever possible, seek out the easiest way to do something. Just do it easiest. Here's something interesting. There was an article in MIT Sloan Management Review about how innovation does or does not happen in organizations. They discovered a list of biases when it came to ideas even being considered. That literally, there are biases that we have when it comes to ideas. For corporations that were international, they said that there was actually country bias. 
So an idea would come before everyone. They'd say, where'd the idea come from? If it came from another country, they'd kind of rank it low. Why? Well, because they're not really part of our group. And so it might not be the best idea. If they were in the same business unit, they had business unit bias. They wanted to know if this person was in their own unit. If they were outside of their unit, then they weren't sure that they could possibly have a good idea about their unit. And then there was site bias. So corporations that were multi-site would kind of say, well, if that site over there thinks it, they probably don't have the best ideas. The study revealed that most people, this is going to be shocking, you're going to be startled, (laughs) want things their way. Most people want things their way. I wonder how much they spent on this (laughs) study. Even if it's not the best way, if they're going to change their mind, their bias will favor those most like them. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> like, so your idea is probably the best idea. But if you're going to change your mind, it'll only be because of someone most like you. You narcissistic. No good. No. It's human nature. It's the way we function. Like, our idea is obviously the best. And if somebody's going to change my mind, it's because they understand my circumstances. They're from my unit, or they're at the very least from my country. I mean, my goodness, how could somebody have a better idea about my life if if they don't even understand my life? It's very interesting that they favor ideas most like them and or by people closest to them. The most innovative companies were led by leaders that determined that the mission was more important than their preference. Think about that. The mission, what it is that they were trying to accomplish was more important than their personal preference and they pushed it down into the organization and said, listen, best idea wins. If it furthers the mission, best idea wins. It doesn't matter who it comes from or where it comes from, best idea wins. I'm grateful that we have a group of leaders here at Centerway that elevate the mission over personal preference. But I want to tell you this, it's a decision. It's a decision that we face every time we have a lead team meeting, every time we have a retreat, we determine, we make a decision to say, listen, best idea wins. Because as humans, we prefer our way. Why? Why is that? Is it because we're narcissistic? I don't know, maybe. Maybe some of you are super narcissistic. I have no idea. But I think, by and large, the main reason why we elevate our way is simply because we understand it. It makes sense to us. We've thought it through. And so because we've thought it through, we think, listen, I think I've looked at this every different way, and I think I have the best idea. I've probably thought about this more than you've thought about it. And I want to tell you, we're not going to get too much into personalities, but I've done a a lot of uh, stuff with personalities, and I have a lot of different certifications. And people that have a preference for introversion, their ability and willingness to change their idea is actually higher than people with a preference for extroversion. And the reason why is because people with a preference for introversion have thought about it more. They've thought about it internally. And, and extroverts tend to process things verbally. So as they're processing this stuff verbally, somebody says, that's a dumb idea. They're like, what? Really? Why? 
because of this, because of that. And now I'm not saying that every extroverted person is more open to the idea of change. I'm just saying, in large part, if you understand your wiring, you're going to be bent a little bit more towards a firm grip on your perception, uh, I'm sorry, on your preference, if you tend to think things internally. Because you're like, listen, I've mulled this over for weeks before I finally got up the courage to, to verbalize this. And now that I've verbalized it, I'm pretty certain I'm right. It makes sense to us. We understand it. Here's the truth. Regardless of your wiring, wherever you fall on that pendulum or on that pole, your way is not always the best way. Let me say that one more time for those of you that are really having a hard time. (laughs) Your way is not always the best way. Some spouses are like, see, I told you. (laughs) This is perfect. In fact, sometimes the best way involves some suffering. Sometimes the best way is the harder way. Isn't that interesting? It's it's counterintuitive, right? Because we think, no, the, the easiest way is the best way. But sometimes the best way is hard. It's just really hard. It's not an exciting thought or a cheery concept. The Hebrew Christians didn't like it any more than we like the idea today. In fact, addressing this tension, the author begins this pericope, this section of thought in a peculiar way. He starts it by, or she or whomever the author is, which is unknown to us, starts chapter 5 kind of with a clear explanation of what a high priest is. It's rather interesting. The first four verses go like this. It says, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. Okay? They're the mediator of humanity to God. To offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. That was the role of the high priest. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins. So the high priest had to go through a cleansing process himself before he could offer even sacrifices for others. So because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So we have an explanation in verses 1 through 4, a kind of clear explanation of high priests and how it's a calling. They're called by God. No one aspires to be a high priest. It's a God thing. God chooses the high priest. And verse 3 is kind of key because in a sense it sets Jesus apart. Well, not in a sense. In reality it sets Jesus apart. That's because verse 3 says, because he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, but Jesus, of course, was without sin. And so he's the great high priest on many levels. He's able to, to, to offer, sin, uh, offer the atonement for sin on the behalf of everyone else without offering it on behalf of himself. He's without sin. Able to be the mediator for humanity for all time. We'll get to that. Verse 5 goes on and says, So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. In other words, there's a, this is a quotation of Psalm 
chapter 2, verse 7, and it's known as a messianic reference. And what that means is that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Son of God, the one that the, the Hebrew Christians were raised to be on the lookout for. And this verse is clarifying what was alluded to in previous verses subtly. And that's this, the sovereignty of God. God is in control. God is sovereign. His way is better than our way. Sovereignty of God. God selects the high priest. God selects the mediator. In fact, God has even sent his son. We tend to enjoy and even rest in the idea of a sovereign God. The idea that that God's got it. That there's a, a plan. There's a process. Until something happens that we don't like. And then when something happens that we don't like, we think, you know what? Is God really sovereign? We're going to talk more about that in just a minute. Before we get there, I want to read verse 6 so we can set this up a little bit more. As he says also in another place, verse 6, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus priesthood has no end. He is forever the mediator before God on behalf of our sins. That's good news. It's a quotation of Psalm 110. The original readers may have been confused by this. They may have been confused about why it is that Melchizedek is even brought up. We're going to talk more about Melchizedek in, in the weeks to come as we unpack the text, but just so you can kind of understand what's happening here and maybe why you possess a little confusion as to why Melchizedek would be brought up besides the awesomeness of his name. He was, uh, he was actually the first high priest spoken about in Scripture. He's mentioned in Genesis, and he's actually outside of the Israel tribe. And so he's an outsider appointed as a high priest. He was a king, the king of Salem, actually. And so... There's some interesting dynamic about Melchizedek that we'll talk more about in weeks to come. But right now, the readers are like, why in the world are we connecting Jesus with the order of Melchizedek? It may be tempting to think that this is referring to a Melchizedekian line of priestly succession. Try saying that three times fast. Like the idea that somehow Jesus has come from the order of Melchizedek, that, that in some way if you trace back his, uh, his lineage or his priesthood that it would somehow connect with him, um, but that's not the case. Or that like Melchizedek, Jesus came from outside the, tri- the tribe of Israel, that in some way there's that correlation, but that's not the case either. And the original readers would have known this. They would have known that uh, that Melchizedek was outside of the tribe of Israel and that Jesus' lineage can actually be traced back to King David and that he he has a Davidic line. And that the, the priesthood of Melchizedek was one and done. There was no continual uh, progression of priesthood following him. And so for all those reasons, this would have been rather confusing. So what does it mean? It means Jesus, like Melchizedek, was sovereignly appointed by God to the confusion of others. It didn't make sense. It didn't make sense to anybody. 
And we'll talk again, like I said, about Melchizedek, but Jesus didn't come the way everyone thought he would. There was a, a lot of thought. If you were raised in any type of Hebrew background, you would think that, that the Messiah was going to come to overthrow the government. And during the time, Roman oppression was very evident in society. And so uh, you can even see the disciples talking to Jesus about like, hey, so now we're marching into Rome. We have this triumphal entry into, into the city center. And all of the disciples are thinking, this is it. It's on like Donkey Kong. Like we're going to destroy these people. They don't even realize God's going to rain fire down. I bet he's going to use fire. It's going to be awesome. In fact, they start jockeying for positions. Hey, uh, Jesus, when you take your position on the throne, may I sit to your right hand? Jesus is like, wow, you guys are dumb. (laughs) Not really. He's patient with them. Why? Because they have an idea of the way this should play out. But Jesus realizes that the triumphal entry is the beginning of, of a death sentence. He's coming in as a servant. He's preparing to lay his life down. Makes no sense. It's counterintuitive. The way Melchizedek was used as a priest outside of the tribe of Israel, how is that possible? It doesn't make sense. The sovereignty of God. You see, the author is brilliantly communicating that all too often things are permissible in our lives and in our world if and only if we understand them. If we understand it, we're good. Listen, things will happen in this life that we simply don't understand. If you don't believe that, if you haven't experienced that, you just haven't lived enough life. There are going to be things that happen on this side of heaven that we just simply will not understand, and we hate that. We hate it. For some of us, it causes us to push away from the table of Christianity and question everything. Why? Because we're control freaks. That's why. Because We need to understand in order to legitimize. It's only okay if we understand. There are so many things. There are so many things that seemed unfair to me as a child. I mean, it seemed like it was my mantra. That's unfair. That's not fair. So my dad would just be like, I know, life's not fair. I'm like, what? I don't understand. You get to do what you want. He's like, no, I don't get to do what I want, and you don't get to do what you want. I'm like, this is not a good conversation. I just always think, man, there's so many things that are not fair. Only to realize now, as an adult, that I completely lacked perspective. That that my perspective was this big in that moment. I had no idea what it was that was going on around me. All I knew is what it was that I wanted. And my unwillingness to have any type of perspective allowed me to declare things unfair. Because I didn't understand it. Here's the funny thing. We don't outgrow that. We never outgrow that. We think that it's something we leave behind. That at some point in adulthood, we look around and be like, I get it. Now I have a totally better perspective. Until we're like, this isn't fair, God. Like, oh wait, that's weird. Seems familiar. 
when our boss does something that makes no sense to us and we just declare it unfair, maybe they have a perspective that we don't. No, that can't be. They're jerks. Or maybe they have a different perspective. We hate this conversation. We hate the conversation because it seems that it creates more questions than it does answers. That in some way, we can just declare things as like something we won't understand on this side of heaven and somehow that makes it better. But the reality is it doesn't because there's things we still don't understand. There's still things that seem unfair at the end of the day. But this really goes beyond the unfair to actually being right. At the end of the day, we, we actually think we're right. Like the tension is, this should have played out differently. We're right about this. I played baseball growing up, and one of the things that I was fairly good at in baseball was stealing bases. I was fast. I'd run fast. And, uh, and so I would. I would steal bases as often as possible. And I was on first base in this one uh, summer league in particular. I was playing summer baseball, and uh, I had a huge lead, and I was really in the pitcher's head. He was a left-handed pitcher, and anytime there's a left-handed pitcher facing me, I could just mess with him all day long. The way I would take a ridiculously large lead and then hop just before he'd deliver, he would balk. It would be great. And if you don't know baseball, you're like, I don't understand. I think you made a word up. What in the world is a balk? It's like a chicken, but it's different. Just kidding. <laughs> anyway, you can ask a friend later. In either case, I would just mess with this pitcher. And so I remember in particular, he was left-handed and he was facing me. And I thought, this is going to be great. And so I take this huge lead and sure enough, he starts to deliver. And so I just take off and I'm all out running. And typically, if you're familiar with stealing bases at all, you dive head first and usually you're holding your batting gloves or something so you don't break a finger as you slide into the bag. It makes you that much faster. And so I knew I had this guy beat so far that I came feet first because it was dusty. It was one of those days where uh, the, the field the infield was just complete dust and messy and I didn't want to get a face full of dust and so I slid feet first because I thought I've got him beat that well. So I could see the ball coming kind of out of my peripheral vision. I go down in a slide, there's dust everywhere. I feel my foot hit the bag. I kick it up over the bag and I grab it on my side as I come by and I think that was easy. And the ump goes, you're out. I'm like, what are you talking about? I'm out. And uh, so I was like, I'm not out. He's like, he never tagged me. And he's like, yeah, I did, you're out. And so I stand up I'm like, I'm not out. And he's like, yes, you are. Go to your bench. I'm like, I'm not out, man. He never tagged me. He's like, yes, he did. So I was like, I want to ask the home. You can ask the home umpire. And so I'm pointing to the home umpire like, come on, come on. And so it's to his discretion to ask the home umpire. And he was all that entertained. So he was like, go ahead. So I look at the umpire and the umpire goes, you're out. I'm like, what? And so I'm like losing my mind. I'm like, there's no way I'm out. And normally I wasn't like very animated, but he didn't tag me. He never tagged me. To this day, I'm telling you, he did not tag me. And so I'm like screaming, like I feel, I would feel somebody tagging me. Like I had that dude beat. He did not tag me. And so the coach comes out and he's like jogging out and I'm like, good. He's got my back. Like at least yell at him or something, you know? Coach comes out and he goes, stop. I'm like, what? He goes, come on. I'm like, well, come again? And he's like, you're out. Come on. I was like, what? And he goes, you're out. Stop. I was like, okay. So I stop and I'm following him back to the bench. I'm like, I can't believe this. And everybody's looking at me like I'm insane. And so I go back and he's like, listen, man, 
you're embarrassing yourself. I was like, what are you talking about embarrassing myself? I wasn't out. And he goes, yeah, you were. And I go, what are you talking about? He said, you left second. The pitcher spun around through the ball. You didn't feel the tag because you slid into the glove with a ball in it. I was like, what? He goes, yeah, he beat you that far. I was like, oh my gosh. So if you're not tracking, the pitcher swings around and throws to second base. And I literally, what I thought my foot hit the bag because there was so much dust, my foot actually hit his glove with the ball in it. Never touched the bag. I slid over and grabbed the bag. I was out by a mile. Why did I stop arguing? Why was I so adamant and then stopped arguing and followed my coach off the field? Because we only rest in someone else's perspective when we trust that the one giving the perspective is for us. That's it. That's the nature of life. If you don't want to hear your boss's best idea, it's because you don't think he's for you. If you don't want to hear your, your spouse's idea of something, it's because you don't think they're for you. You don't trust them. If you don't want to hear what it is your parents think about something, it's because at the core of who you are, you think maybe they're not for you. That maybe they have nothing better to do than go back in their room and be like, hey, let's just mess with them. Let's say no to everything they ask for for at least three more days. I used to wonder, like, are my parents just conspiring to make my life miserable? Is that the plan? No, rest assured, they have better things to do. At the end of the day, I stopped arguing because he looked at me and said, stop, let's go. And I thought, okay, he knows something I don't know. Somehow, this great injustice benefits our team, is what I thought. I didn't think I was wrong. I just thought there was, there was something that he knew that I didn't know, only to find out that he was in fact right. I trusted him. Because we had the same mission. We both wanted to win. And so I knew if there was a way that this could somehow be overturned or if there was some great injustice, he would lose his mind. He would be fighting for me. And when he wasn't, I realized there was something I was missing. So I have a question. Is your preference more important than the mission? Is your preference more important than the mission? painful. Painful because we think, why would the hurt that we endure, why, why would the unfairness that we endure, the situation that we're enduring, how does that help the mission? We all have situations where we want answers. We lack perspective. We demand an explanation from God like a child that can't understand why they can't eat chocolate cake in bed. Which, by the way, was one of my biggest questions growing up. Like, what's the difference? I won't get crumbs anywhere. <laughs> I didn't have the perspective to see what sugar would do to me <laughs> at 8 o'clock at night. I just knew I wanted something. And I didn't know why I couldn't have it. Why? That ever-elusive question that we never outgrow. Why, why, why? 
Verse 7 says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reference. Reverence, sorry. Supplications. Jesus offered up prayers and supplications. We hear a lot about Jesus' prayer life. It was astonishing how often he would pray. But supplications was a rare word. A rare rare word in Greek, which means submissive request. Prayers and submissive requests. The most prominent submissive request that we witness Jesus having is when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's in there the night that he is going to be betrayed and he is literally tormented to the point of sweating drops of blood. And in the midst of his prayer, in the midst of his supplication, he says, Lord, nonetheless, your will, not mine. Hmm. Is there another way this cup can pass? Nonetheless, your will, not mine. What cup is he talking about? He's talking about the cup of wrath. The cup of wrath that's referenced throughout scripture, the idea that Sin needs the wrath of God against it, that God must exercise wrath against sin. And Jesus is saying, is there another way? And he's showing his humanity. He's saying, listen, there's got to be a better way. Is there a better way? And yet, supplication, submissive request. But God, if there isn't, I'll do your will. If there's no other way, then I'm still serving you. My willingness to be a child of God is not contingent upon me understanding this moment in its entirety, but instead simply making a request, a submissive request. There's no real evidence that that he cried in the garden. It says Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. Where we hear loud cries and tears from Jesus is actually when he's hanging on the cross. He's literally, it says he cries out to God. Why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? In the midst of his humanity, being fully divine and fully human, he says, why? What we need to understand if we fully understand the the divinity of Christ is that in a moment's notice, he could have had 10,000 warring angels rush in and rescue him. He is showing restraint in the midst of his pain. I'm not that good. Maybe you are. I'm not. Because at the end of the day, I'd want it my way. I'd say, God, is there any other way? There's not? Really? You're going to do nothing? Fine. Boom. 10,000 angels. You're dead. (laughs) My way. It's incredible. Jesus lays down his life for your sins and mine. He pays the price that we deserve so that we can walk in freedom. So that when we pray, God will hear our prayers. He's a mediator of our sins so that when we fall short, God is present, forgives. That in that moment, God sees us as his children. 
that he sees Jesus' clean record and puts it on us. I see no sin. You're blameless because of what Jesus has done. This verse is actually more profound than simply that. You see, it goes on, it says, to him who was able to save him from death. He was able. Not only was Jesus able, but God who he is praying and making submissive requests to is able. That's where the hurt sometimes rests. That's where we can't reconcile. That's where the pain is because we're like, wait a second. You are a big God. You created the heavens and the earth. I've seen you intervene in these moments in my life. I've seen your faithfulness. I mean, we can look back and see the record of God's hand in our lives. So why not now? You're able. Are you abusive? God, is this somehow making you happy? Is this pain enjoyable to you? Why not my way? Is what we're saying. Why not my way? Here's the deal, God. I know how this should play out. Why won't you just ask my opinion? It's amazing how we position ourselves in places of authority in, in most every area of our lives, including the things we do not understand. Well, God, clearly this is how it should go. It goes on and says, to him who was able to save him from death and he was heard because of his reverence. He was heard. I think all too often we kind of have poor theology and we say like, oh, maybe I didn't pray right. Maybe this didn't work out because I didn't, go th- I didn't pray enough. That somehow I hijacked the will of God. Like as if God is standing up there and going, oh, you were so close. So close, but you know what? You only asked nine times and I require ten. Boom, not going to happen. That would be abusive. It's not the way God works. And the reason I know is because the record we have in Scripture, God is sovereign. He has his will. And we can pray. And there have been moments that I have prayed in some of the darkest moments of other people's lives as well as my own. And I've prayed prayers of supplication. God, this is the way we want it. We want it this way. And if you would, would you come and intervene? But if there's, if there's a different way and somehow this serves the greater will than then we're going to continue to serve you. We're still in. We're still all in because because we trust you. Because we believe that you're for us and not against us. Because your way is bigger than our way. And someday we'll be able to look back and go, oh my gosh, I get your perspective. I understand. But in the meantime, I'll remain faithful Easier said than done. God heard his son's prayer 
and he hears your prayer as his children. The answer is not always what we want or understand because of our perspective. Jesus was heard. If there is any other way, can this cup pass? God says, no. You're going to the cross. Okay. You want to talk about unfair? Somebody paying the penalty for a price that you and I have earned. That's unfair. You want to pitch a fit? Pitch a fit about what it is that earned your salvation, that earned your freedom. Put on your big boy, your big girl pants and realize the biggest injustice, the, bi- the biggest cosmic injustice in the history of, e- of the entire world is the fact that Jesus went to a cross and died a death he doesn't deserve. Willingly. Willingly, he laid down his life. Verse 8 says, Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. This doesn't mean that God, that Jesus was disobedient prior. It means that we obey even when it's painful. Jesus obeyed when it was painful. Why? Because we trust that he is for us and that we are all on the same mission. Remember there was a point in college where I'd experienced quite a bit of pain. I was really broken. I was frustrated, angry. And I had a professor. I set up a meeting with him and I sat in his office. I started to tell him about the perceived injustice, the brokenness that I was feeling. I didn't disclose everything because quite honestly, I didn't want to talk about everything. I didn't think it was any of his business. And he looked at me with empathetic eyes and said, what is the journey teaching you? I was like, what? So what's the journey teaching you? It was like that life's unfair. He's like, you already knew that. It's like, that this sucks? He's like, yeah, you already knew that too, right? It's like, yeah, I guess. He's like, no, what is it teaching you? I don't know. He goes, what else do you know? said that God is good, but he doesn't feel good. He doesn't feel nice. Not right now. He said, so then what's the journey teaching you? And I remember pausing and saying, although I've said with my lips that he is enough, the pain of this moment is revealing that he's not. He's like, wow. What needs to change? I sat and I cried for a while. I said, I need to start trusting him. That he loves me. And that he's for me. I don't know if that resonates with you this morning. But I want to ask you, what's the journey teaching you? What's the journey teaching you? Is it revealing some, some nasty, dark closets of your heart and life that you just don't want to come face to face with? Is it unearthing some, some poor theology? Some, some my way, I want it my way. Some narcissism, I don't really know. But there's a, a commentator that says this. 
I'll read it because it's a direct quote. It says, this is the instant age, in quotes. If a thing is to be had, it must be had now. The idea goes something like this. The promises are there. Claim them at this very moment and the prize is yours. Whether it's an instant sanctification, instant power, or instant healing, we live in an impatient society in the idea of humble submission, patient waiting, and steady perseverance does not make a ready appeal. But the way of Christ was the way of persistent obedience. All his life was given to it. He strongly resisted the temptation to have it affected in a spectacular and supernatural moment. He resoluted. He resolutely, sorry, pursued the will and purpose of God. He knew that it could not be achieved in a magical minute. Persistent obedience. We want answers and explanations now. Now. God, but tell me why now? So I can understand it. Is your obedience attached to your understanding or to your trust. I can't tell you how many times my parents would tell me to do something and I'd be like, but just tell me why. If you just tell me why, then I'll obey. If I understand it, then I'll be okay with it. Because after all, I'm the God of my own life. After all, I'm the ultimate authority. Just let me understand it and then I'll obey. But if I trust... If I trust, then when I'm told, I have persistent obedience. And in the midst of my obedience, I say, is there another way? I'll keep moving, God, and just wondering if maybe there's another way. Verses 9 and 10 conclude with this. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Listen, God is at work and he is sovereign so we can rest assured in contentment. We can be content because God has it. He really has a plan. And if you trust that and believe it, then you can rest assured in contentment. We always say that the scripture requires something from us. And so this morning, the question I want to ask you is this. Regardless of hardship, when will I do what God is asking me to do? Regardless of the hardship in your life right now, the difficulty of the moment, whatever that looks like, when will you do what God is asking you to do? Let's bow our heads so we're not distracted this morning. If you'd like, you can close your eyes. But as the worship team comes up and prepare to, to play some songs of response, I want to challenge you some possible application. For some of you this morning, maybe your application and the thing that you need to do that God's asking you to do, maybe the when is now. Maybe the thing is to surrender your life. Maybe it's to surrender your life to the reality of who Jesus is and what he's done for you. If that's you, it can be done right now in the quietness of your own mind to just pray a prayer. Lord, I'm a sinner, but you died for my sins. Would you forgive me? 
Come and be the Lord and leader of my life. For others of you, maybe it's now, maybe it's later this week. I don't know when the when is, but the when is important part of this question because it's not just what you're going to do, it's when so that you have some accountability around it. That you'd write down and say, listen, maybe on Monday, I draw closer to him while I'm in the pain. Maybe that's your application. Spend extended time in prayer on Tuesday in the midst of my lack of understanding. Maybe it's tomorrow morning when you go to work to do the right thing, even when it's counterintuitive. Say, okay, God, I know you're for me. I'm going to do the right thing. It might have consequences in this life or on my profession or whatever that looks like, but I'm going to do what it is you're asking me to do. For others of us this morning, maybe you're grateful and lucky enough to to not be in the midst of pain right now. Maybe it's to simply say, I'm going to live with open hands on mission. I'm going to open my hands and do whatever it is that the Lord might be asking me to do. Not because I understand it, because he's bigger than me. His ways are higher than my ways. So we're going to continue to move forward. I don't know what it looks like, but we have to respond this morning to what it is that God's asking us to do.